Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 109, Koan Training and the Different Styles of Zen. In this episode, we interview Gary Shishin Wick Roshi, a Rinzai and Soto Zen master, about the different schools of Zen and about the nitty-gritty of koan training. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist geeks. We're back again. And uh, as you might have heard, we have a new studio. And today we've had our first guest that's actually in the studio with us today. So that's a real treat whenever we actually get to meet with a a teacher or a practitioner face-to-face. And of course, here with me is Vince Horn, my buddy. Yeah, and our special guest today is Jerry Shishen Wick Roshi. He is the abbot of the Great Mountain Zen Center in Lafayette, Colorado, which is just a few miles down the road from Boulder. And he's also a faculty member at Naropa, where I took a Zen Buddhism with him a few years ago, and he teaches that each year. And finally, he's a lineage holder of Maizumi Roshi's and the president of the White Plum Sangha, which is a group of his lineage holders. And you may have heard of a few of them, Genpo Roshi and Bernie Glassman and several others, uh, Joko Beck. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's part of a, an illustrious family of Zen teachers here in the West, and we're really happy to have him with us. So thank you, Roshi, for being oh, here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And first question I had for you is, is about your teacher and about the unique history that he has and that you've adopted, I guess, as a result. And he was an interesting character, I understand, in that he was a lineage holder in both the Rinzai and the Soto Zen schools. And so he ended up creating a bit of a hybrid between the two, which sounds kind of unique. And I was wondering if you could describe how that works in practice and what you do that's different than if you were just a Rinzai teacher, just a Soto teacher. Actually, um, Vince, is a little more complicated than that because... Maizumi Roshi is a lineage holder in three traditions. Oh, really? Yes. His Soto lineage comes through his father, Bayan Hakujin, and he trained with him and went through the traditional Soto protocols and, and uh, training. And then while he was a university student, he lived at a dojo of Koryo Osaka Roshi, who was a lay Rinzai teacher and mm. studied koans with him. And it was at the behest of his father, you know, who wanted him to have a little broader Zen education. And then Maizumi Roshi came to the United States in the mid-50s, but he was part of what they call the Japanese Soto Zen Mission, which was a Soto temple and Japanese community center in little Tokyo in Los Angeles. But he was looking for practitioners, people who would sit meditation with him. And the Japanese community was more into ceremonial activities and social activities. And eventually he broke away and formed a small zendo with some Western students. And during that time, there were some Japanese teachers, most notably Yasutani Roshi, who came to this country. And Yasutani Roshi, when he taught on the West Coast, Maizumi Roshi was his translator and eventually became a student of his and a successor of his. Now, Yasutani Roshi's teacher, Harada Roshi, is the first one to merge the Rinzai and Soto traditions. 
So Harada Roshi and Yasutani Roshi were Soto priests who studied with Rinzai teachers and developed the practice, the Rinzai practices. That's the history. And so Maizumi Roshi was also a successor in that hybrid tradition, and he was a successor in pure Soto and pure Rinzai. You know, so I've been asked by some Japanese teachers, am I Soto or Rinzai? <laughs> mm. And all I can say is I'm a half-breed. You know? <laughs> I combine both. Yeah. Now, what does it mean in practice? Well, when students start, it, there isn't much difference. I mean, they have to learn how to quiet and discipline their mind. That's the most important thing. Because, uh, you know, we have a phrase which is used in many traditions, monkey mind, where the mind just jumps around after one thought. And then another thought, whatever's bright and shiny, they go after. And first thing is to learn how to sit still and to quiet the mind so that we don't keep distracting ourselves and, and uh, constantly amusing ourselves by doing things that take us away from the present moment. But then uh, in the Rinzai tradition, there's a curriculum or we call them upayas, skillful means, which are called koans. And, and koans are not well understood by those who don't practice them. In the popular press, they sometimes call them logical paradoxes. That's because the logical mind cannot wrap itself around them. A koan that you might relate to is uh, what, is your original face before your parents were born. That's a koan. Or another koan, which has been popular in the press, is what's the sound of one hand? And the koan, that, that, the way people usually report it, is what's the sound of one hand clapping? And the clapping is not part of the original koan, but it's been added in order to make it more rational or logical or so people can wrap their heads around it. But the purpose of koans is to drive the student out of the logical, rational mode in order to penetrate into their intuitive being and to, to, to see these koans. And they're perfectly logical and rational when you understand the basis of them. And, and the, the first basis, you know, is to see the essential impermanence, or we use the word emptiness, of all things. And then coming from that place how you can relate to these koans. Mm. And then there's a, a whole uh, series of koans, depending upon which lineage one is in, and when you finish them, usually the, the teacher will feel that you're prepared to be an independent teacher. In the Soto tradition, which is called the School of Silent Illumination, the, the main practice is called shikantaza, which literally means just sitting. But if you look at the character shikantaza, shikan means just. And ta is an emphatic syllable to the word just. And uh, za is sitting. Like in uh, the practice that we do in Zen is called zazen. And uh, za is sitting, sitting zen. And zen actually means meditation. So shikantaza isn't just sitting, it's just sitting. Okay. <laughs> Need. Okay, and so that's where you just totally put all of your energy into just being present without focusing on anything in particular, open to everything. Everything. Yeah, I'd I'd heard or read, and 
Yasutani Roshi's The Three Pillars of Zen, when he talked about Shikantaza, it was like this really intense thing where you're like sweating and burning. And, and, and so when you said just sitting, that sounded more like the way I'd heard it described from him. Not like you're just like, you're just kind of chilling out and hanging out. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Exactly. Well, Yasutani Roshi told a story about Shikantaza where it's like walking through a crowded marketplace and you're balancing a jug of water on your head and you don't want to spill a drop. Now, if you're too tight, if you know some a kid running by or a dog bumps you, you're going to spill it. And if you're too loose and not paying attention, you know you're going to spill it as well. So you have to find just that right balance, like finely tuning a string on a violin or a guitar. But then that intensity comes about where Yasutani Roshi said, and walking behind you is a soldier with a, dr- a drawn sword. And if you spill a drop, he's going to cut off your head. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can't be too tight, you can't be too loose. And at the same time, you have to be fully attentive. Gotcha. And so you do basically, and you're teaching all of these different kinds of practices. We do. And uh, you read in the Three Pillars of Zen, which actually came out first in the uh, mid-1960s. And I read it then. It it was one of the first books on Zen practice. There there were a lot of books on Zen philosophy. But this was edited by Philip Kaplow, who, who developed the Rochester Zen Center in this country. And Yasutani Roshi was his teacher. And in the Three Pillars of Zen, Yasutani Roshi gives these, uh, the transcriptions of these talks he gives. And essentially, he talks about how the personality of the student determines what practice Mm. is assigned to them, what kind of aspiration they have. I mean, if a student has, is primarily um, motivated by faith in the practice, then Shikantaza is appropriate. Uh, practice for them. But if they're motivated by a uh, strong aspiration or determination to be enlightened, then koans are more appropriate. And if somebody's coming just to relax themselves, to get the health benefits and so forth, then just counting or following the breath would be an appropriate practice. But the reasons that bring people to practice, whether it's Zen or any other form of contemplative practice, doesn't necessarily have to be Buddhism, the reasons that bring them to practice are not the reasons why they continue mm. to do it, you know, or these reasons constantly are changing. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like if the reasons are constantly changing, then as a teacher, your methods or your, your suggestions are probably changing as well. Oh, yeah. You always have to be aware of what's up for the student, where their their main focus is and what they're doing. And and then, the, and these are the upayas that, that are the skillful techniques or skillful means that came to us from Japan and the Japanese Zen tradition. But then there are new upayas that are being developed in this country. Mm. And that's one of the strengths of Buddhism, that no matter what country it moves to, it can ad- adapt itself to the personality and to the other traditions that already exist in that country. For example, Zen Buddhism arose in China about a thousand years after the death of the Buddha. And it evolved through a combination of the Indian Mahayana Buddhism and and Chinese Taoism with a sprinkling of Confucianism in there as well. Mm -hmm. And so in this country, 
and in the West, I'll say not necessarily just this country, there are new upayas, and, and what they revolve around is the particular characteristics of, of the American mm-hmm. psyche. And the people who are practicing, for example, there are a lot more women practicing in this country and, and in the traditions that came to this country from Japan and from the Southeast Asia, from Tibet, from China, are very patriarchal. And the women have an inferior position. That's not that's not particularly true in this country, and it's changing very quickly. And also, most of the people who practice are lay people. They're not monks. They're not monastics. You know, right. So they have to be upayas for, for householders. And then the other thing is that Americans are always interested in their psychological well-being. So these kinds of issues were not uh, transmitted here. And, and at our center, we've developed meditative practices that deal with negative habit patterns and emotions and, and using meditation on how to bring them into the conscious mind and transform them. And you had mentioned before the interview started that your teacher had actually encouraged you in some ways to, to make the Zen its own here in the West. And so it sounds like you've really taken that suggestion to heart. Well, that's very true. He told all of his successors that he cannot develop American Zen. He's Japanese, and that it's up to us. And you mentioned the name of some of the successors. I mean, some of the prominent ones, you know, are Genpo Roshi, who developed his own style a big called Big Mind, and uh, Bernie Glassman has developed the Zen Peacemaker Order. And, of course, Daido Lori is also a Dharma brother, and he developed uh, the Zen Mountain Monastery, which is more traditional, but he brings arts in very strongly to it. And, of course, Joko Beck, who has her Ordinary Mind School, which focused a lot upon emotional aspects of practice. And something we'll get into a little later is uh, something that you're developing called the, the Great Heart Way. So it, it fits in nicely with this uh, mm-hmm. series of, of uh, different approaches that the Maizumi mm-hmm. Roshi students have taken. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to get back into uh, koans because this is something we haven't really talked much about on the show. And it sounds like not all of your students necessarily would be doing koan practice. That's right. I mean, not all of them do it, but we find that koans are a very effective way for people to let go of what we call the small clinging self and open up to a much larger awareness of who they are. You know, it's called Buddha mind or big self or you know, all kinds of names that we have for it. And koans are a very effective way of doing that. And one of the things I was surprised to learn when I was in your class and learning about the Zen koan system is that it actually is a system that there and there are these initial koans, and that's what most people are aware of, like uh, mm. what is the sound of you know <laughs> one hand and things like that, or mm-hmm. or moo. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how that system works and what are the points of the system. I mean, the impression I got is that it wasn't just to have initial awakening, but then it was to continue to refine one's understanding and also to learn how to to speak Zen, to like <laughs> communicate this realization right. in some way. Yeah, that's right. In the tradition that I studied with Maizumi Roshi, there's 700 koans that we studied together. And the initial koan is, is the most difficult one because that's the one where you have to open up your eye of wisdom and begin to see what we call the mysterious source of all things. And it can take years 
sometimes, you know, of serious training to do that. You mentioned Mu, so for the benefit of the listeners, should say that Mu was used for over a thousand years, now about a thousand years in in the Rinzai Zen tradition as the first koan, and it's the first case in a collection called the Mumon Khan, which means the gateless gate or the barrierless barrier. And the koan goes like this. Uh, a monk asked Joshu, the master Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And Joshu answered, Mu. Now this Mu literally means no, but that's not what Joshu was saying. Mu was demonstrating Buddha nature. So the koan is to take Mu and get in touch and not just get in touch with, but actually reveal your inherent Buddha nature, your inherent unconditioned self. So students will sit with that koan, and uh, we direct them in private interviews how to work with it. And students have varying degrees of openings on these first koans. My teacher, Maizumi Roshi, uh, would comment to me that it's like being in a dark cave and even the glow from a tip of a stick of incense is enough to see something. Obviously, the more you see, the clearer you are. But once a student has had even a small opening, they can move forward with other cons. And the way I think about it is is that we're looking at this reality, which is like a big jewel. And... When you have your first opening, you begin to see the nature of that jewel. And the individual koans help you look at each facet and clearly delineate what the facets are. But some of them, of the koans, will drive you even very much deeper into your opening and your awareness. Because each person gets stuck on different koans. It's really interesting. Having been teaching koans now for about 20 years, I can see that certain koans are hard for almost everybody, but but some Students breeze through cons that other students get stuck on for months, you know, so you never know, you know, what a person sees. Now, what you were alluding to, Vince, from the class is that there are different kinds of cons. And the first cons are called Dharmakaya cons, which means to become one with, to become one with something. No separation, no duality. And you have to present it. Let me just tell a little story. To, to talk about a Dharmakaya koan. And this has to do with a, a contemporary Zen master who died in the last century. His name is uh, Soan Nakagawa. And Soan Nakagawa was one of those Japanese teachers that came to this country and uh, left a legacy here. And the story that I heard was that uh, he was visited by a biblical scholar, and they were having tea. And Soan Roshi asked him, what were the last words that Christ uttered on the cross. And the scholar said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so on, Roshi said, no, he didn't say that. And the scholar was a bit perplexed because, you know, he knew the Bible. He had read it hundreds of times. He said, yes, he did. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and someone said, no, he didn't say that at all. And so the scholar, a biblical scholar, was getting a bit annoyed. And and finally he said, okay, you know, you, you seem to to know, uh, what did he say? And Soen Roshi jumped up and threw his arms out like in a crucifix, put his head to the side, and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Soen was 
Christ on the cross. Whereas the scholar was talking about Christ on the cross. And that's what we mean when we present koans. It has to come from your experience. There's no separation. You have to be one with whatever it is. And there's koans about all kinds of things, from listening, from seeing, from going to the bathroom, from cleaning yourself, and, you know, and how we just really don't pay attention to what we're doing. Mm. So, so that's one class of koan. Another class is to see differences within that unity, see the diversity within the unity. And there's a whole series of koans about that. And then you mentioned uh, using words. There's a whole series of koans about how to use words. And what we mean is live words as opposed to dead words. So live words are words that come directly from your experience. Dead words are abstractions. Mm -hmm. so, so students have to learn how to express themselves. But live words also have the power to bring other people to awareness. Mm. Does that connect with the whole idea of transmission in the Zen tradition? Well, that's a complicated uh, question. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I mean, a transmission means that when you, the teacher decides to give transmission to a student, he feels that the student has the same understanding that they see I die face to face. Mm. Okay. So, Going through this training is part of developing that intimacy. There's a real intimacy between a teacher and a student, mm. you know, that uh, where essentially there, there's no gap between them. And then there are other kinds of koans as well. I mean, there's a whole class of koans, you know, which are called nanto koans, which means difficult to pass through. And those are koans that quite often my teacher would really be demanding on. And, uh, one of the koans is uh, from a Chinese teacher named Nansen who said, people these days see reality as if in a dream. So that's a, a koan. Actually, there's another part to it, but that's the essence of the koan. Hmm. You know? So what does it mean? Are we, what we usually view as reality is of a dream, and what does it mean to be awake hmm. if, if it's a dream? And then beyond that, there's another series of, of koans. Dude, <laughs> 700. Yeah. And there's 100 koans that have to do to, with the relationship between the relative and the absolute. And it's a very important topic. Mm. And then the final 100 koans have to do with, with the precepts, which are the ethical and moral teachings of Zen. And it's interesting, they're left to the end. You know? now, although... At the beginning, you receive the precepts, but the formal study of them is, is at the end. That is really interesting. Yeah. Usually it's uh, flip-flopped uh, in a lot yeah. of other yeah. traditions. Yeah. And you wrote a book uh, a few years ago called The Book of Equanimity, and it's a look at a hundred of these koans that I guess were traditionally found in the Soto school. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about those and, and how they fit in. Well, with Maizumi Roshi, we studied the hundred koans in The Book of Equanimity. There's several books collections of koans in about the 10th century of the Christian era, various masters collected these koans together and used them as teaching devices for their students. I mentioned already the Mumankan or the gateless gate, which is used very frequently, that collection. 
There's a collection called the Blue Cliff Records, and there's another collection called the Book of Equanimity, which came out about the same time. And the Blue Cliff Records was uh, compiled by a Rinzai teacher, and the Book of Equanimity was compiled by a Soto teacher. And I don't think at that time there were such big differences between the two mm -hmm. traditions. Now, the interesting thing is I, I, I did a count, and about a third of the koans overlap between the two collections. In other words, they're not unique. However, the way they're interpreted sometimes is different between the two compilers. The collection, although it was collected by a, a master in the Soto lineage, the Book of Equanimity, it's, they're treated as koans in, uh, in the Rinzai, some Rinzai schools, and the Soto school study them, but more as liturgy mm. rather than as koans. Do they more like ponder the meaning of them? Yeah, they, they, them? they might have discussion groups about it or something like that. And that, uh, a Rinzai teacher, a Rinzai Zen master would just kind of, you know, roll his eyes, you know, when, <laughs> when he hears something like that. You know. But there are strengths and weaknesses in both traditions. And that's what Yasutani Roshi and Maizumi Roshi tried to do is bring the strengths of both traditions together. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.